0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, 2 Samuel chapters 6 and 7. Well, Second Samuel chapter 6 is the story of the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, where it had rested for the past... 60 years, 70 years, rather, in the home of a fellow named Avinadav. He was a Levite, probably a priest, located in Kiryat Yarim. Now, Kiryat Yarim was also known as Bela and Baal Judah, and it was just less than a, day, a day's journey from uh, Jerusalem. Now that David had selected and captured the stronghold of Zion that occupied but a portion of the land known as Yerushalayim, a place he intended as his capital he turned his attention to reinstituting and reviving the proper worship of the God of Israel which has steadily declined since the death of Eli who was Samuel's mentor to the point of it just being an afterthought among the tribes. Now I've already pointed out that as we wind our way through the Samuel scroll which has been divided into the two books of First and 2 Samuel we find fewer and fewer instances of the words Torah, Law, and Moses appearing in these ancient texts. And this is because we find less and less interest in following the true religion as given to God's people on Mount Sinai. Their preference was for a concoction of Middle Eastern social customs, pagan worship practices, and developing Hebrew traditions, all of which was accomplished in the name of Jehovah. Now it's obvious by what we've seen occurring in earlier chapters and and now here in this chapter that neither the authorized religious leadership of Israel, the Levites and the priests, nor the civil leadership, David and his court, had any actual working knowledge of the Torah. Yet I suspect if we could go back in time and ask them if they did they display surprised and probably offended looks on their faces and respond vehemently that not only did they know the Torah, they were following the Torah. Such is the nature of what happens. And only a few generations after the Lord has declared His true and perfect word to mankind, and Christianity has not been immune. Before we resume with the story of the ark's arrival in Jerusalem, there's a question that that needs to be asked. Why didn't David first bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem so that the ark could be reunited with its God-ordained dwelling place? Now for this we're going to have to speculate to a degree, but I think the answer is fairly evident the original tabernacle a a, a grand tent made of cloth and animal skins had long ago worn out we know that in Elie's day when it was located in Shiloh Shiloh, it had been highly revamped and uh, added on to but Shiloh had had been burned out and the tabernacle was probably destroyed It's questionable whether whatever form it now held was even portable. But there was another and more thorny problem involved. There were at this time, at the least, two high priests and thus two independent sets of priesthoods, each with its own loyal following divided along tribal lines. David was in process of unifying the twelve tribes and he had to find a politically palatable solution to determining which priesthood would preside. Each set of priesthoods had some sort of sanctuary and furnishings for it, and some of which were undoubtedly original. Others were probably replicas. David's solution was not to use the sanctuaries or the furnishings of either priesthood. At least not for now. Let's take up reading Samuel 6 at verse 6. Samuel 6, verse 6, page 340 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When they arrived at Nacon's threshing floor, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. But Adonai's anger blazed up against Uzzah and God struck him down on the spot for his offense so that he died there by the ark of God. It upset David that Adonai had broke out against uh, Uzzah. So that place has been called Peretz Uzzah ever since. David was frightened of Adonai that day and he asked, How can the Ark of Adonai come to me? So David would not bring the Ark of Adonai into the city of David. Rather, David took it over to the house of Oved-Edom, the Gittite. The Ark of Adonai stayed in the house of Oved-Edom, the Gittite, for three months and Adonai blessed Oved-Edom and all of his household. King David was told, Adonai has blessed the house of Oved-Edom and everyone who belongs to him thanks to the Ark of God. So David went and joyously brought the ark of God up from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David. And when those bearing the ark of Adonai had gone only six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened sheep. Then David danced and spun around with abandon before Adonai wearing a linen ritual vest. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of Adonai with shouting and the sound of the shofar. As the Ark of Adonai entered the city of David Michal, the daughter of Shaul, watching from the window, saw King David leaping and spinning before Adonai and she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the Ark of Adonai in, put it in its place inside the tent that David had set up for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Adonai. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Adonai Tsevot. Then he distributed to all the people of Israel, to everyone there, both men and women, a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a raisin cake, after which the people all left for their homes. When David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Such honor the king of Israel has earned for himself today, exposing himself before his servants' slave girls like some vulgar exhibitionist. And David answered Michal, In the presence of Adonai who chose me over your father and over everyone in his family to make me chief over Adonai's people, over Israel, I will celebrate in the presence of Adonai. I will make myself still more contemptible than that and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes." But those slave girls you mentioned will honor me. Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless until the day she died. Now we saw last week that at least three serious violations of the Torah had been committed by David and his entourage as they journeyed from the Ark to Jerusalem. First, they put the the Ark into an ox cart instead of having it carried on the shoulders of Levites from the clan of Kahat. And second, one of the Levites accompanying the ark touched it. it, uh, Because the oxen stumbled, it caused the cart to lurch, and he believed that the ark might tumble out on the ground. So Uzzah instinctively put his hand out to steady it. He died instantly for this infraction against God's holiness. And third... David and the 30,000 participants held a wrong attitude in their minds about the nature of this occasion. We find that they celebrated the return of the ark in a frivolous, party like atmosphere, rather than with a more appropriate, solemn, and reverent mindset. But ultimately, it was Uzzah's startling death that unnerved David, causing him to postpone the completion of the ark's journey to Jerusalem. Now in verse 8 we're told that Uzzah's death at God's hand made David upset. Now the Hebrew word is chera, and it means to be hot, to be angry. As we've gotten to know David, I think a good word might be frustrated, really Frustrated. Despite what many women might think, men actually do have emotions. (laughs) But although the array of our inner emotions is substantial, the outward display of emotions, especially for warriors and strong leaders like, like David, is often reduced simply to anger. What exactly was David so hot under the collar about? It was that upon Uzzah's death, he knew he couldn't possibly risk bringing the Ark into his personal compound, the city of David, as he had his heart so set upon doing, because the cause of God's fatal outburst was a total mystery to him. I said in the opening part of the lesson that David had no working knowledge of the Torah. Here's another proof. If David knew the law, he would have instantly known why Uzzah died for touching the ark. And if the Levites had known the law, they could have explained to David why Uzzah died. And this needn't reoccur. But since ignorance was running rampant at the moment, an abundance of caution was the wisest course of action for David. This death occurred at a place that's described as Gorenakon, meaning the threshing floor of the stroke. And after the incidents, the place was memorialized and it was given a formal name, Peretz Uzza meaning bursting out against Uzzah. Well, David decided that while he wouldn't send the ark back to Kiryat Yerim, he would put it in someone else's charge for the time being. Now, although it doesn't say why he chose this course of action, the reason is obvious. he let somebody else be the guinea pig and see what happens. Okay, verses... 10 and 11 explain that the person and family who would take the risk of housing the Ark was Oved-Edom the Gittite, or more probably, the Gathite. Now now quite a bit of strange commentary has been written about Oved-Edom, usually centering around his being a Gentile resident alien living in Israel. Therefore, David wasn't even risking a Hebrew life should the Lord break out in wrath again for some unknown reason. But this isn't the case at all. If we merely look to the parallel account of this event as recorded in 1 Chronicles 26, we find out that not only was Oved Edom a Hebrew, he was a Levite. It's true that Oved Edom is not a typical or necessarily appropriate name for someone of Hebrew descent but the reason could have easily been from intermarriage. The reason that we should translate Gittite like it is in our complete Jewish Bibles as Gathite is rather self-evident. First, both words are spelled identically in Hebrew. It's just a matter of how the word is vocalized. Gittite, Gathite. But second, Gat Ramon was a named Levitical city. It was located in Dan's former territory. We read of that in Joshua 21. And as residents of Gat Ramon, they were called Gathites. And as ignorant as David was to Torah protocols, he certainly would have known better than to intentionally turn the holiest object on earth over to a common foreigner for safekeeping, especially after what had just happened. It seems probable that this Levite, Oved Edom, lived in greater Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city of David, because later on we're going to see that it is just a brief journey from his house to David's compound. After a period of three months, word came to David that not only had this Levite and his family not been harmed, they had been greatly blessed. What was the blessing they received? Well, at least one of them we discover in 1 Chronicles 26 when we see a list of eight sons assigned to obed Edom's household. So that likely, this, is, this blessing is a great fruitfulness of male children which was regarded as a supernatural blessing due to the presence of the Ark. That was enough for David. He wanted that blessing to fall on his household. Now I also suspect that during the three months some, sto- some uh, Torah study was probably accomplished as well. Because in David's next attempt to bring the ark into the city of David, all of the earlier errors were remedied. Well, verse 12 explains that this time David joyously went to bring the ark home. Now the Hebrew word is simcha and it speaks of an inner reverent joy. Thus, we have the context for what comes next. It, that David danced before the ark wearing only a priest's ephod. In other words, when we picture the procession with the musical instruments, the singing and the dancing, everything, the attitude was appropriately pious. Even if we modern Christians, Might have some personal inhibitions and feelings about various kinds of outward displays of worship and praise, it is always the intent and the attitude of the worshiper that matters to the Lord. The rest is only about our personal hang ups. Verse 13 explains that the ark was borne by the people, that is, it was carried instead of being transported in an ox cart as cargo. Further, that after going only six paces, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened sheep. Now there's some differences of opinion about what is meant by this. Some say that after every six paces, another ox and sheep were sacrificed. Therefore, however far the journey was, a substantial number of oxen and sheep were sacrificed. And since many of these same folks advocate, a goodly distance to Ovid Edom's house could easily have been thousands of animals involved. And since the passage seems to imply that it was David who presided, over the sacrifice, then the procession took quite some time because it would stop and wait for David to sacrifice and then begin again. Well, others say there was only one sacrifice and it happened after the first six paces and it wasn't repeated. Well, my conclusion is that Ovid Edom's house was in Jerusalem. And so the distance would have been relatively short. Okay, further, saying that David sacrificed is probably merely a common way of speaking. In other words, all throughout the Bible, we'll read how people brought their sacrifice to the altar and they sacrificed their animal. But in actuality, it was the priest who did the sacrificial procedure because only the priest could approach the altar. So it was probably not David himself who performed the actual sacrifice, but rather it was a sacrifice that he both provided and ordered to occur. I also think it highly unlikely that David would have considered it a great thing to sacrifice a grand total of one ox and one sheep. Therefore I have no doubt that the number of sacrifices was to be representative of every six steps that David took. Since the ark was in Jerusalem it likely was at more than 600 paces or so so it's easily imaginable that something on the order of 100 oxen and 100 sheep may have been sacrificed in the process. Even double that's not an enormous undertaking. Now we're informed that David danced in an ephod and that there was shouting at the sound of the trumpet. It was quite a spectacle. But just for the record, it wasn't a metal trumpet like the two that are on the wall behind you that were blown. It was a ram's horn. It was a shofar. Further, when we read of the shouts, it says, which is a poor translation, the word is teruah. And teruah is a specific kind of shofar blast. A shofar, you see, was used like a bugle. It was the means of communicating a signal from the leadership to the troops. The teruah was one of those signals and it communicated that the people needed to pay attention. So depending on the circumstance, it could be used as a victory signal. It could be used to signal it was time to assemble for battle. Here in Torah class, when we blow the shofar, it's a teruah. It's used to call the assembly to order, to get your attention. Now, as the ark of God made its way into the city of David, David's wife McCall was watching from a window. And what she observed sickened her. There was her husband, the king and twirling, and apparently in a way that was, to her thinking, quite immodest, if not downright embarrassing. But even more, to her mind, it was not appropriate for a king to behave in such a manner. Even so, I mean, or especially so, very publicly. The rabbis have noticed quite rightly that the scriptures don't refer to Michal as David's wife. Rather, she is referred to as the daughter of King Saul. We'll pick up that thought again momentarily. The ark was placed inside the tent that David had prepared for it. Now there's been a lot of argument about the nature of this tent and it often steps around the English translation of tabernacle. Tabernacle. Some commentators prefer to translate this verse as David placing it in a tabernacle instead of in a tent. And they say that this is proof that either the remnants or some facsimile of the wilderness tabernacle was previously brought to the city of David and this is what the ark was placed in. The term tabernacle is used in the... In the uh, King James Version, for instance, and other older European-era produced versions, it ought not to be. The Hebrew word is oil. and it means tent. Oel is a generic term. It indicates a common tent, something like a shepherd would use. The word for the tabernacle in the sense of a holy place is Mishkan. And that word's not present here. And we're going to get a little clearer sense about the structure and nature of this tent in the next chapter. But it's entirely clear that this was not a tabernacle, this was not a mishkan. Now next we're told that David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now this sentence, when addressed in Hebrew, tells us a lot. First, the phrase "before the Lord" means before the place where the ark is present. Second, there were two distinctly different categories of sacrifices offered in this passage: the olah and the shlamim. The olah is essentially the highest sacrifice, and with this kind of sacrifice, all the meat is cut up and thrown onto the altar to be burned up to ashes. Nothing's left over. The idea is it's all given to God. The other kind of sacrifice mentioned here is the shlamim, the so-called peace offering. For our purposes, the importance is that only some of the meat is burned up on the altar. The bulk of it goes to the worshippers and to the Levites. Originally, you see, no meat could be eaten that was not first part of a sacrifice. Later this command was relaxed. Thus if a person wanted to eat meat they certainly wouldn't offer an olah sacrifice whereby all the meat had to be burned up. Therefore Hebrew history shows that shlamim sacrifices were overwhelmingly offered more frequently than any other kind because the person who offered it received most of the meat back for a planned banquet. Now, this understanding of the sacrifices then helps us to understand the next verse, which says that, next, to commemorate the day, says David distributed a loaf of bread, a raisin cake, and a portion of meat to every last Israelite in attendance. There would have been thousands of people involved. Where would the meat have come from to give to all these folks, since meat was a fairly precious commodity and not at all part of the average daily diet? From the shlamim sacrifices. In fact, there was no other liturgical reason for the peace offerings than to supply the meat for a happy feast to celebrate the arrival of the ark. Another interesting tidbit is on earth when we look at the original Hebrew. The bread that was baked and given away in great quantity was unusual. Various translations say it was a ring of bread, or it was a cake of bread, or even a cake made in a pan. The words are, Challah Lechem challah bread. This is the traditional bread used on Shabbat. Or, as we've also made it a Torah class tradition, it's served for all of our feast fellowships, except for Passover. It's a bread that's generally reserved for festive occasions. Well, as the celebration was winding down, David went to his palace, or at least to the building that housed his harem, in order to offer a traditional blessing over his household. Immediately, an incensed Michal confronted him, and in the most sarcastic tone, she verbally attacks David for what she sees as his unseemly behavior as the leader of the procession of the ark. And she is particularly upset because he supposedly exposed himself even to his servants' slave girls as he danced in a priest's ephod. There's a number of things we can take from this section of chapter 6. First, there is some modern day argument as well as some rabbinical commentary that says that David didn't really expose himself. Rather, it was that he was merely immodest, at least immodest for a king. Unfortunately, that interpretation doesn't hold any water. Because the Hebrew word used here to describe his immodesty is gala. And gala means uncover nakedness. It's a term with built-in sexual overtones. So to say his private parts became exposed at times during his dancing is inescapable. Second, when McCall said he exposed himself to the, to the servants' slave girls, there's two things being communicated. Notice that these slave girls are said to, be, to belong to who? The servants, a servant's servant, so to speak. So these are the lowest class of people possible that are serving in the palace. And the idea is not that these are the only people who saw David's nakedness, nakedness, it's just that as bad as it is that the tribal elders and leaders might have seen David like this and that some of the common townspeople might have caught a glimpse, nothing could have been more demeaning than for a servant's slave girls to also have such a privilege that after all should have been reserved only for the eyes of David's wife. Third, McCall wasn't so concerned for David's modesty as she was for herself. She was humiliated because she was the daughter of a king. Notice, not the wife of a king, David, but the daughter of a king, Saul. She more identified herself with her father, dead and gone now for many years, than with her husband. And biblically speaking, this is spiritually a wrong attitude. And it's a breaking of the commandment for a married couple to leave their mothers and fathers and be joined together as one. But it also shows that Michal had retained that certain arrogance that most family members of a king have. One that we saw Saul especially exhibit at every turn. His daughter had learned this well. And this compares to David's attitude, who was Israel's king, regardless of his other faults, did not seem to harbor this usual level of entitlement and better-than-thou attitude of royalty. Fourth, McCall obviously resented being part of a harem. She was David's first wife, given to him by King Saul. Not only that, but if we were to take the time to revisit the occasion when McCall was forcibly returned to David, there's no hint that McCall was happy for this reunion. The reality is that many of the girls that she resented for getting a view of David's anatomy, a view that she regarded as one that was for her alone, were the mothers of many of David's children. But she didn't accept her position as one among many. She saw herself as privileged, above it all. And this whole dancing in the ephod episode reflected badly on her as she saw it. Well, David didn't respond meekly to McCall's outburst, but the exact meaning of what he said is yet another disputed part of this chapter. Now, I'm not going to go into the several interpretations for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you how I see it. The first thing David does is to put Michal in her place by telling her that she is not the daughter of a king but rather of a man who was deposed of a kingship by Jehovah. That's who she is. In fact, the Lord took Saul's kingship and gave it to David. Bottom line, whatever claim to royalty you might have, Michal, it's through me who was chosen by God, not through your thoroughly disgraced father who was abandoned by God. Mm -hmm. Further, David's goal in his dancing in the ephod was not to show off for the people, but rather to show humility before Yehoveh. Even if some of David's people, including Michal, saw his antics as contemptible, even if David himself felt Contemptible by his own actions. Those simple slave girls who have no such arrogance or position among men will honor him as king of Israel and that's sufficient. Here's the thing. David took off his royal clothes and he donned an ephod before the Lord. An ephod being the undergarment of a priest was an outward demonstration of David's inner being. A priest is first and foremost a servant to God. By David refusing to wear his kingly clothes and preferring instead to wear the simplest of priestly garments, he showed that when the Lord is present, there's only one king that matters. The Lord God is the supreme king of heaven and earth and for a man to stand before him, even as a limited earthly king, is most inappropriate, especially for this occasion. So David presented himself as God's humble servant and then in some ways compared his lowly position before Jehovah as approximately equal to the servant's slave girl's position before David. The comparison was, there's no comparison. God is supreme and unchallenged. And of course, it would be difficult from a, from a prophetic perspective not to notice that David, as the precursor to Messiah, wore the mantle of a priest, however briefly, that overlaid his role as a king. Just as Christ would. And even more, it mimicked the person of Melchizedek, that mysterious king and priest of Shalem, the very place where David donned the ephod and now ruled from. The last verse of this chapter explains that Mikhail remained childless until the day she died there's a couple of important aspects to this statement one is that being barren is always seen as a curse from God the Hebrew belief and with good reason since it's very much in line with biblical principle is that a woman's primary duty in life is to renew life a woman was created to bear children And this fulfills God's command to be fruitful and fill the earth. Thus for a woman not to bear children was humiliating and she bore great shame because it's seen as a divine curse, oftentimes for reasons she doesn't know. Now whether you subscribe to this or not doesn't matter. The women of the biblical era era certainly did. And that is at least part of the meaning of this verse. We see Michal's sinful and rebellious attitude against God and against his anointed and so she pays the ultimate price for it by having no children. But there's another aspect to this. The Talmud says that the meaning is that Michal had no other children after this event. It says that she indeed provided David with one child. And the conclusion that, and this conclusion that they come from, um, comes from a statement in Second Samuel chapter three, verse five, where it says, "And the sixth child, Yitriam, whose mother was Aglah, David's wife; these were born to David in Hebron." In other words, the ancient sages are saying that Aglah was Michal, and there is at least some possibility that this is true law, you see, is not a name. It's a term of endearment. It means little heifer. Now that may not be a title most any Western woman would be particularly fond of, but it was quite a loving thing in those days. I'll leave that up to you to decide if Agla was merely a nickname for Michal. The evidence is just not complete enough for me to come to any definite conclusion. Well, let's move on to chapter seven, but but don't just keep your Bible set down. Okay, we're not going to read it just yet, but I do want to say a couple of things about chapter seven as a preparation and in hopes that you'll read it thoroughly before we before our next gathering. Second Samuel chapter 7 is one of those where entire books have been written about it. No doubt, this is the theological pinnacle of the entire Samuel scroll. Thus the academics that follow the literary criticism discipline of Bible exposition, which just might be the majority of modern Bible scholars, have major misgivings about it. There are many reasons in their repertoire of reasons to claim that this chapter is very nearly, if not an outright, fraud. Now some say that this was a very late insertion, well after the Babylonian exile done by a Deuteronomist. A deuteronomist is a theolo- a theoretical writer from ancient times who found various reasons to provide to prove rather to prove a point on a variety of theological positions so he or they rewrote some of the ancient scriptures to their suiting or they merely added or deleted entire sections now a To a Bible scholar of the literary criticism discipline, a Deuteronomist is not a theory, it's reality. Of course, the only proof of such a thing is agreement among themselves. How do the literary critics decide when such a treatment of Holy Scripture has occurred? By means of their own intellect. A literary critical scholar does not accept mystery or miracle. They approach Bible texts no differently than any other ancient literature. They determine that there are things that an ancient biblical author could not have known so it must have been written by someone else at a later date after the fact. Or perhaps to their way of thinking there's just too many coincidences about things that work too neatly together. So someone must have doctored it up to make it appear that way. Or as they would say, to make the scriptures harmonize. Or they decide that a certain ancient writer wouldn't use a certain word or a certain writing style. And thus they conclude that somebody else fiddled with the text. The proof? None. Only their own opinion. But since they usually have a PhD and are greatly admired in their field, what they say becomes fact. Now I read a great deal of material formulated by Bible scholars who are of the literary critical ilk. I use some, I discard discard a whole lot more. Often they have great insight on the meaning of certain obscure Hebrew words and phrases or they open a line of thought that no one else would dare to dare to sometimes it can be very fruitful but if you could offer one general characterization of the literary critical method of bible scholarship it would be that it is soulless As a general principle, literary critics do not see any spiritual element in the biblical texts. They do not believe in the divine hand. Therefore, if what a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel prophesies comes true decades or centuries after it was supposedly uttered, it was all a trick. If what seems to be a prophetic oracle in a psalm eventually comes to pass, it was a fraud. Because what actually happened was that after something important occurred such as Babylon destroying Jerusalem a later writer with an agenda, a Deuteronomist would go back and put words into a prophet's mouth a prophet who lived long before the actual fulfillment by altering the text to make it appear that there was a valid prophecy and then a real fulfillment. In other words, there is no such such thing as spirit. There is no such thing as miracle. There is no such thing as divine prophecy except as a category of literature. Of course, there are a handful of exceptions to the rule but my description of literary critical Bible scholars is apt. As we delve into Second Samuel chapter 7 then, you'll quickly understand why literary criticism Bible scholars say that this chapter was inserted in its entirety after the Babylonian exile or it existed earlier but has been so extensively altered at a later date as to bear no truth, or that it has been altered to a small degree but at significant points so as to make it to appear to be something it's not. And their line of thinking goes in this direction, we'll finish with this, because if it is real, And it is true that it is utterly breathtaking in its impact. It proves the sovereignty of God, the infallibility of Bible prophecy, and the reality of God's plan of redemption through David's royal line. We're going to explore this amazingly deep, and I might add, unexpected chapter the next time we meet.